uh, Pastor Scott asked me this morning if I would read from Psalm 99. It says, The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise you, great and awesome, your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among the priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them and kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. And this is God's word. service this morning. It's called The Blind Man and the Elephant. Some of you may know it. You may have heard it. And there's a point behind this. I'm not just going on a random tangent this morning. So. It was six men of Indostan to learning much inclined who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. They first approached the elephant, and happening to fall, against his broad and sturdy side, at once began to bawl. God bless me, but the elephant is nothing but a wall. The second feeling of the tusk cried, Ho, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp, to me tis mighty clear. This wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal, and happening to take the squirming trunk with his hands, I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out his eager hand and felt about the knee, what one most wondrous this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, quoth he. Tis clear enough, the elephant is very much like a tree. The fifth who chanced to touch the ear said, E'en the blindest man can tell what this resembles most. Deny the fact you can. This marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth most sooner had begun about the beast to grope, then seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a rope. 
So these men of Indostan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right, and all were in the wrong. So oft in theological wars the disputants, I ween, tread on in an utter ignorance of what each other mean, and prate about the elephant not one of them has seen. Kevin DeYoung references that poem in his book, the following statement. But of course, there are two enormous problems with the analogy. For starters, the whole story is told from the vantage point of someone who clearly knows that the elephant is an elephant. For the story to make its point, the narrator has to have clear and accurate knowledge of the elephant. The second flaw is even more serious. The story is a perfectly good description of a human inability in the matters of the divine. We are blind and unknowable to God by our own devices. But the story never considers this paradigm-shattering question. What if the elephant talks? What if he tells the blind men that wall-like structure is my side? That fan really is my ear, and that's not a rope, it's my tail. If, an elephant were, if the elephant were to say all of this, would the six men be considered humble for ignoring his word? People argue that God is unknowable. That, that God can't certainly be understood and known for who he is. But we see in the book of Revelation, God himself, Jesus Christ, is going to reveal who he is. And my desire for us this morning, more than anything, is that we not approach this like blind men that come to this text and to this passage coming to want to feel and see what we need to feel and see versus who God is saying he is. May we come to this text with, with open hearts and open minds and with a passion and desire for God to reveal the truth about himself to us. For we need to know him desperately. The book of Revelation is going to fill you with awe and wonder. It's going to cause you to quake in your boots at times, and that's okay. Don't, please, please hear me on this. Don't brush away those feelings, and don't, well, I've got to somehow soften God. Because oftentimes what I hear of God, and we've seen in pictures of you've got this soft, cuddly, rosy-cheeked God who's got long flowing locks and he's just put Pantene in as a little bit of conditioner and, and maybe he's got maybe just, just the hintest bit of, of maybe some, some softening of his face with some makeup and his hands are smooth and soft and he's, he's sitting in a nice comfortable chair or maybe upon a rock but it, it's a comfortable rock and, and he's petting the little lamb. God is, and we hear the people talk of the world, God is love, and he's compassion, and he's forgiveness, and it's all okay. We're going to learn it's not okay today. 
And I need us to be all right with that. I need us to, to come to a point where God exposes sin in our lives. And today he's going to be speaking specifically about the church. Where God is going to expose our failures as a church, we get to humbly come before him and say, Yes, God, you are righteous and you are holy and we are not and we confess before you. You see, the next seven weeks following today, we're going to look at the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And God is going to give an honest assessment of each one. And we can only imagine the, only, the, the most devastating thing that any of those churches could do is, is give a justification or a defense of why they are the way they are. You see, God is going to expose things in these churches for the purpose of repentance and turning to him and saying, you're right. We have failed in this area. And we need to pursue you once again. But before we get there, we have this introduction to what is it that God is going to, what standard is God going to judge these churches against? That's a great question. I'm so glad you asked us, asked me this morning. So let's dive into it and look at this. We're going to begin this morning. And verse 1, or excuse me, verse 9 of Revelations. Revelation, see I did it. Revelation, 1-9, there we go. I'm going to get my thing going here so I can track with my slides. It says, I, John, your brother and partner, who shares with you in the tribulation and kingdom and endurance in Jesus, was in an island called Patmos, because the word of God and testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit in the on I was in the spirit on the Lord's day when I heard a voice behind me, great like a trumpet. Who is John? What, what is he known as? The the, the, the what disciple? The beloved disciple, the one that Jesus loves. We we learn about John early on in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, Clarissa, could you change that over to X32? I think it's probably still on, on library. Thank you. Um, we learn about John early on that, that he's a really excitable kind of guy. And, and him and his brother are called the Sons of Thunder. And rightly so. We, some of the earliest exposure we get to these, these individuals are them asking Jesus a very kind of arrogant question. Like, who's going to sit at your right hand, you know? Because they're, they're, they're wanting, like, the right hand is the, the, the position of power, the position of authority. And kind of an arrogant statement, there's 12 disciples, and James or John are like, hey, it's one of us, isn't it? Right? Right? And we learn about this. And, and, and we, we also learn about their mom coming and asking this question about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And you're just like, whoa! Like, who is this guy? Like, he's the beloved disciple. He's got a special relationship with Jesus, but he's kind of arrogant a little bit in his assumption of where his placement is in the, in the ranking of the disciples and in the kingdom of God. Come to the book of Revelation, and the way John addresses himself, the way John addresses what's taking place, we see a guy who's been radically changed. Because Jesus has told his disciples, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you have to become least. We discover 
a disciple of Jesus Christ, one who walked with the Lord, the one who went at the cross, was standing with Jesus' mom. And Jesus turns to him and says, Mother, behold your son, and son, behold your mother. Here he is, removed from his position as elder overseeing the churches, on an island, exiled. And he's identifying himself there as one who is a fellow sharer of the tribulation. The word there that's in the original language is a word that we get our word for fellowship from with a little prefix on the beginning of that word. And it's quite literally meaning he is a a fellow or a co-partner in the fellowship of the suffering. How many of you would like to be identified that? Think about those who are suffering in the persecuted church, church in the Middle East, in China, and other parts of the world where being a Christian is, is hated. Paul John is saying, I here am on the island of Patmos, I'm suffering along with you other churches. Because whether you believe that the book was written during the time of Nero or the time of Domitian, both times were times of great persecution and great suffering for the church. In fact, the kind of uh, coded language that I think is taking place here, normally when a letter is written by one of the apostles to a church, names are named. Greetings to you. And he specifically mentions individual. John does not mention here specific names or individual people when he's referencing the churches. And I can't help but wonder, this would have been a letter, a scroll, that would have been carried to the churches and could have been very easily intercepted by those who are persecuting the church. And if names were named, then those people would have probably been killed during that time. This is a time of great persecution and great suffering for the church. And I want you to put that in context in light of what is about ready to be said by Jesus. It's very interesting. He goes on to say, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and kingdom and endurance in Jesus. Notice this three, three different nouns that are said here. He says here first, the tribulation, and then he says the kingdom, and then the endurance, the steadfastness. Right smack in between tribulation and endurance, steadfastness is kingdom. God's kingdom is placed here and now upon the earth in the midst of tribulation and enduring saints. That's where God's kingdom lies at this current time. He was on the isle island called Patmos. It would have been an island about eight miles long by about four miles wide. Archaeologists have discovered rock quarries that would have been run by the Romans during this time. It's quite literally possible John is exiled to breaking rocks. And John would have been an old man at this time. Tom, how would you feel about breaking rocks? Uh, not right, not right. Yeah, exactly. I'm not down for it either, and I'm a couple years younger than you. And so uh, put this in context. Here's this gentleman who has walked with Jesus. 
He is a leader in the church, and now he's reduced to breaking rocks, exiled on an island, separated from the churches that he loves, the churches that he established, the things that he, here he is, locked away, and what is his attitude? We see an attitude of humility and great love, but we're seeing in him, why does he say he's there? He's there for the purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's there because he was sharing the truth about God. But even more so, there seems to be a double understanding here. He's also there to receive further revelation. And he's beginning to grasp this, beginning to understand this as he's writing this letter. I am here for the gospel of Jesus and I'm here for the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus even though I'm separated from the church. I don't know if we'd have the same attitude. But here is a laborer of the gospel of Jesus Christ who says, I don't deserve anything more. I deserve exactly this. And I see God's purpose and plan in the midst of my suffering. And he's, what, how do we know this? Maybe you're like, Scott, you're stretching a little bit. In verse 10 he goes, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. John is worshiping God. John, here he is in the midst of this horrible situation. And what is he choosing to do on the Lord's day? Worship God. He is in the spirit on the Lord's day. He is worshiping God. He is leaning into God and clinging to his God in the midst of all this. He's not rejecting God. He's not pushing against God. He's not saying, God, I walked with you. I did all those things with you. Jesus, I took care of your mom for crying out loud. Why? Because I think John knows one of the most fundamental truths of the scripture and that when we're in our deepest, darkest, hardest moment, the greatest place of peace, restoration, strength is in worship to God. So John is choosing to worship God and God speaks to John in these moments of worship. Now I'm a firm believer that the Bible is complete, lacking in nothing, that God is no longer speaking special revelation to the church that is on par with Scripture, okay? The Bible is complete. But I do believe that in the midst of our trial, in the midst of our hardship, in the midst of our brokenness, when we lean in to worship God, God moves within us, he strengthens us, and he is so intimately close with us at times uh, in our lives when, when things are going great and success is had and, and, and things are on a roll that we don't experience God. And here John is getting to experience that. Getting to know God in this intimate way. And God speaks like a great trumpet. I want you to understand that John is going to use very poetic, descriptive language to describe things. Does God's voice sound like a blast on a trumpet? Or is it more this understanding that as this trumpet is sounding, it's, it's one announcing, it's authoritative, it's preparatory, it's, it's all the things that like when a trumpet blasts, the king enters, kind of thing where, where, where God's voice is heard, it's preparation for something grand to be revealed. 
And he begins to speak. Saying what you are, what you see in the book, send it to the seven churches. Now, I want you to understand, not seven like buildings, because the church back in that time would have been house churches, and when he says these different towns, there could have been several house churches, but because they were all within Smyrna, he would have been saying this letter goes to all those people gathered together, these assemblies, these gathering places of the church, you go and send these letters to we got to break out of the mold of our understanding that when he says this churches, we got to not think of like North Shore and uh, Real Life and LSC and the NAS and Christ Center. Like, not different, like, but the people of God gathered together for the common purpose of the glory of God. And he says to the assemblies and Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. I apologize, I meant to put up a map for you to look at, but it's very interesting. You have the Isle of Patmos, and then you've got what's known today as Turkey or Asia Minor. The Isle of Patmos, and right across from the Isle of Patmos was Smyrna. And then it starts going upwards, and it goes to Pergamum, and it goes up to Laodicea, and then it goes to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to, excuse me, to Thyatira, and then finally Laodicea over here. And so it makes this almost like a base cloth, right? This, this kind of circular motion that, that this letter would have gone here and then made its way around. Now, what's very interesting about this letter, this book that would have been written, it's not a codex. By the way, Christians are responsible for inventing the book. Didn't know if you knew that or not. We are, we are responsible for that. It's not that, though, okay? This predates that. This is a scroll. And so when you read a scroll, you unroll it and you read through it and you don't just read a section. You read the entirety of the scroll and you're understanding the whole scroll. And it wouldn't have been, okay, this is the chapter or this is the subheading entitled Smyrna. We're just going to read the Smyrna. So guess what? Everybody's junk is put out before everybody. That's a good thing. That God's exposure because it's, it's a blessing to be led to repentance. It's a blessing to understand because guess what? Today it may be Smyrna, but Smyrna's may be Philadelphia's problems tomorrow. And he goes on to say, and I turned to see the voice that spoke to me, and when I turned and saw seven golden lampstands, in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed in a long robe, and he wore a golden belt around his chest. His head and his hairs were as white as wool, even white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like polished bronze as refined in a furnace, and his voice like the sound, roar of many waters, and holding in his right hand seven stars from the mouth, his mouth, a sharp two-edged sword came out, and his face shone like the sun at full strength. I would love for you to go sit in your quiet time with God and reread that text every day this week and gain a vision of Jesus Christ his power and his might on display and get the vision of the little rosy cheeked Jesus petting a lamb out of your head And maybe, just maybe, if we read this text and if we study that the awe of God might re-enter our hearts once again. 
And we might be sitting there going, God, I don't want to know you from, from my perspective. I want to know you from your perspective and who you are that I may stop treating you flippantly. What is it that God is revealing about himself in this moment? I'm nervous this morning about talking through this text because Tom gave me a great warning during our sermon chat. Because I, the, more, the one thing I want you more than anything else this morning is to be in awe of Jesus. And my fear is when we start explaining things that I'll explain away that awe. I don't want that for you this morning. I don't want that for me. That when we look at this text... We might go, man, as, as we look at different aspects of Jesus, that our awe would increase and would grow in him. He first off begins mentioning that there are seven golden lampstands. They're gold. Gold has this meaning and understanding in scripture of glory. These lampstands are supposed to bring glory to God. They're fashioned, they're gold, they're beautiful. They were made out of this specific material so that when they're described, they're described as golden. Their identity is to be one that brings glory to God. And they're lampstands, meaning that they carry the light. They bring the light. They're objects that are to bring glory to God that carry the light. This is essential to your understanding of what the next seven chapters or the next seven sections are about regarding the churches because the churches are going to be judged upon the way that God made them to be identified. They are to be glorifiers of God by bringing the light. Who's the light? Jesus. God is not going to judge the church on whether they have welcome signs. God is not going to judge the church whether they have a Kidville program. God is not going to judge the church based upon if they have greeters and the foyer, if they have a countdown at the beginning of the service, if they have chairs, benches, pews, whatever. God is not going to judge whether we have a praise team or whether we sing with instrumentation or just our voices or whether we sing at all during a service. God is not going to judge us on the order of service. Whether we have five songs, four songs, whether we, we have a benediction, and whether we have all those different aspects that have become a part of our churches. That's not what God is going to judge these churches on. He's going to judge them completely upon if they're golden lampstands, if they're glorifiers to him by bringing the light. Church, hear that. Our sole existence and purpose for existing is to be glorifiers of God that bring the light, that carry the light. God forgive us. Because in my seven plus years of the church, we have made it about a lot of other things and I'm so sorry for God and I repent of that to God and I... I actually now kind of, if, if I sense that you're trying to make something more in this service than something else, I'll squash it. Amen. Because this 
exists. We exist during this time so that we can be better glorifiers of God by bringing light to the world. That's why this time exists, is to train people up for that purpose. If we do something during this service that doesn't enhance that, that isn't about that, it needs to go. If something in the service becomes more important than something else, then it needs to go. Because that is the purpose of this time, to train the body to, bring, to be glorifying God by bringing the light. Now you're like, move on already. I wish I could. Thank goodness I don't have to because we get to spend seven weeks looking at this. How churches have either done a great job at it or a poor job at it. And he's going to address them. And my prayer is that, for, first of all, for our elders, that God would give our elders discernment during this time to assess our church family and to identify, are we, are we Smyrna? Are we Philadelphia? Are we a little bit of Smyrna? Are we a little bit of Philadelphia? Are we some of Laodicea? Because we as leaders of this church body want to appoint this church body to be exactly that, to be golden lampstands. Amen. Notice the title that is used of Jesus. This is a title that Jesus uses of himself. The title that finds itself in Daniel and also in the Gospels. It's a title that points both towards his humanity and his deity. He is fully God and he is fully man. And he is the ancient of days. He is the promised one of God. And, and for people who sit there and say Jesus never makes proclamations of himself as God, really miss stuff like this. He is the promised Messiah. He is God. He is the Son of Man. And where, does he, where is he placed? He is placed in the midst of his churches. These seven golden lampstands around him, and he is placed in their midst. And the description of Jesus is one in a long robe, like a priest would wear. You know what the priest's duty was in the, in the holy place? One of his duties was to take care of the lampstand. To fill the lampstand with oil, to trim the wick, to keep that lampstand burning bright. He is the righteous great high priest and we've learned about that in Hebrews. He has right and his authority over his church to trim our wicks. To cut away dead stuff so that we burn bright. He is right and he is just and he is holy to point out er errors in our thinking and to point us in the direction to being bright lights in this world so that we will glorify him. It is not an unloving or an unjust thing for God to say you're screwed up, church. It's loving and compassionate for him to tell us that so that we can repent and we can get about what we're supposed to be about to have that abundant life in God now to be his kingdom people now. He's holy. His white hair. His eyes are a fire. He is the refiner's fire. He has come to judge what is, what is not holy, what is not good, and get rid of it so that we can understand what is. What's interesting about this metal that is mentioned here, your text may use the word bronze, but it's not bronze. This word for this metal is used only once here in the New Testament. And it's found nowhere else in all of ancient Greek 
literature. The way Jesus' feet are described is a brilliant metal that nothing can compare to. No metal known to man can compare Paul's to its greatest brilliance to the feet of Jesus. Which feet oftentimes are depicted of this, this dirty thing, this thing that you know really is, is a less than part of the body because it's in constant contact with the dirt and the earth back in those times and the sandals would have been yucky and messy. But Jesus' feet are brilliant and shining and radiant. His voice is the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he holds the seven stars. We'll talk more about that in a minute. And out of his mouth has a sharp two-edged. Now it's that word two-edged there is the same word we get for two-edged in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, we discover that this two-edged sword divides bone from marrow, exposing completely before God to heart. But the word here for sword is not just a small dagger, the one that's used in Hebrews, but this is the sword that people go to war with. It's Braveheart's sword. It's the one, you know, when he cries freedom and he throws the sword out there. That's the kind of sword we're talking about here, right? And this idea and the depiction of it, the word of God, what proceeds from Jesus' mouth, he's going to go to war with, and then everything will be laid open and laid clear as his words come forth and reveal the hearts and lives of men, and, but specifically here, reveal what's in the hearts and minds of the church. And his face is as brilliant as the sun. None can stand before him. This is Jesus. I found myself this morning in my study of this text Tears streaming down my face. That the Almighty God would even introduce himself to the church, that introduce himself to us and reveal himself in such a way. It should be overwhelming to us that the Almighty God would stoop to make himself known, the Creator. Revealing himself to creation and subjecting himself to creation. The creation taking him led away in chains to an unjust trial, to a death upon the cross. Our God did this. This God. The shame is we somehow don't see this Jesus on the cross. We see some weak, tattered, wimpy God on the cross. No, he didn't change. All the power that he has here, he had in that moment. He just chose not to reveal it because he loved us. Because he wanted to make us his bride and his church. So don't think of Jesus on the cross as some wimpy, guess the world got the best of him kind of God. He is God with all this power, all this might, and all this authority dying for you and me. He is almighty God. The golden belt, he has glory. This is our God. This is our King. Now, what is John's response? 
When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. I fell at his feet as dead. I wonder in this church body how many of you have ever been face down before God? And if you haven't, why not? If you haven't, then you haven't seen this picture of Jesus. This kind of glory has not been revealed to you because when this kind of glory is revealed to you, that's the only place you can go. John is it's like dead. It's like his heart stopped beating. It's like his pulse stopped like He is like, I don't deserve this. I'm reminded of Peter in his statement, Lord, I am a sinner. Like, us recognizing who we are before the almighty, holy God. And, I, and I'm hoping this morning you're, you're wrestling with this and you're getting this and you're not sitting there like distracted or bored because this is powerful stuff. Like God revealing himself and John responds appropriately. Boom. On his face before God. And I love what God does. This is the judge. This is the righteous one. This is the king of the kingdom. He said, the scriptures say that he, but he placed his right hand upon me saying, fear not. I'm reminded of God's word to Joshua and how many times God told Joshua, fear not, be strong and be courageous. He reaches out to John. He puts his, don't miss that loving portion of our God. God in his full might, glory, splendor and what he's just revealed to John, he touches John. Just like he did the leper. Just like he did to those of us who are once far away, which is all of us. He reaches out and he touches us by the power of his Holy Spirit. Jesus reached out and he touched John and he says, don't be afraid. And why shouldn't John be afraid? Because I am the first and the last and the living one. Quite literally, the one who lives. And I died, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus is laying out the gospel right before John. He's saying, John, don't be afraid. I'm the living gospel. I am the eternally existent Son of God. From before time began till time alone, I am God. I am the Son of God. And I'm the living one. I'm the one that died, and I'm the one that lives and will live forevermore. I'm the only resurrected one that got up and walked out of the grave that will never die again. I am the one who has the keys to sin and death. There is no authority greater than me. I am the King of kings, and I am the Lord of lords. John, get up! Because I am on your side. Because guess what? The gospel is in you. The truth of God is in you. So you need not be afraid. And that's the beauty of this passage. Is that for those who are in Christ Jesus, we shouldn't be afraid of the truth of Jesus Christ. It should not cause us to fear. It should cause us to rejoice. 
even when it reveals our brokenness, even when it reveals our sin, it should cause us to rejoice. He goes on to say, therefore write what you saw and what is and what will be after these things. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. I'm 75-25 on this. Okay? 75% sure if I look at the context of what is taking place that when he speaks of these angels he's not speaking about angelic beings. He's speaking about messengers that are sent to the churches. These people that will carry John's message to Smyrna, to Philadelphia, to Thyatira, to Laodicea, to these churches. He's, and what's very powerful about this imagery is God is holding these stars in his hand. I will protect these messengers with this message that will be carried to you. You will receive it, and I promise it, because they're held in my right hand. And God's right hand is always the hand of power. It's the hand of might. It's the hand of providence. God's hand of power, might, and providence holds these stars so that this message will be delivered to all these churches. And they'll hear this truth from Jesus. And they'll know So the other 25% of that is, if you want to have a good discussion with me, you may be able to convince me otherwise. But I think that really that God is bringing, he's sending out his messengers to take this message. Now it's very interesting. We had a good discussion about what it would be like in prison back in those days. And it's different than today. There's no cable TV. Uh, there's no three meals a day paid for. There's no exercise weight room. There's no... Uh, it would have been brutal. And the only way you ate is if those that were your friends brought you food. John in exile has these people that are with him, that are feeding him and sustaining him in this time of exile and imprisonment that will carry this message to the churches. And these seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. Now, I do believe Contextually, this book is written to these churches at this time in this day and age. But just like we've seen already in the book of Revelations when I mentioned the seven spirits before the throne of God and that these seven spirits are referencing the Holy Spirit, that this idea of seven is complete totality, this, this is a number of completion, that this book then is not just written to these seven churches, but is for them and for us and the church as a whole, God's people for all time. So we study this book. And we recognize that the message that went to Smyrna is a message that's good for us. The message that went to Thyatira is a message that's good for us. And so we study this book knowing that God is speaking not just during this time in this place, but to us now. We need to know Jesus Christ in this way. We need to desire Jesus as our righteous judge placed firmly in the midst of the churches here in Chelan, in Washington. And before you start thinking of another church and how God needs to trim their wick, you need to start praying for our church and how God needs to trim our wick. 
how he needs to fill us, how he needs to guide us so that we might burn brighter and more brilliantly for the glory of God with the truth of Jesus Christ. That our hearts would be convicted. That's what I'm praying for as we go through this, that our hearts be convicted. And yes, we mourn and we grieve sin, but we also praise be to our God. For you want us to burn brightly and brilliantly for you. So much so that you have not abandoned your church. You have placed yourself in the midst of your churches to bring us this message to us. What is God speaking to us? I pray we'll be on a journey of discovery over the next few weeks during this time. Jesus is a holy God. That means he demands holiness from us. He demands it in such a way that he won't settle for anything less. And so he's going to use things within this church body. Things that hurt. He's going to discipline our hearts so that we are glorifiers of him by shining the light in this world. Brothers and sisters, I need you to understand something. There's, a, there's something that exists in today's world that is non-existent in the New Testament. You see the idea of somebody being a child of God and Christ follower, but not part of a church family, it's not even existent in the Bible. You can't find it. To be a Christian is to be part of a church family. To be a part of a church family means that we grow and we wrestle through things together. And I'm asking you, and I'm stepping out on a limb here, but I think I need to ask this of you. I'm asking you to figure out who's your church family. Who is it? It's going to walk with you, that's going to talk with you, and commit to that church family and to commit to one another and seeing each other and walking alongside of each other and glorifying God and that we're able to have real conversations with each other, loving conversations that, that teach each other to glorify God and shine brightly for Jesus Christ. But we can't have those kind of conversations if one foot's always on the way out. Like if we're afraid to talk to somebody and somebody says, well, then I'm gone. We got to commit and we got to believe. And, and if this church, if LSC, you're like, man, I don't think that this is the place for us. Great, then go find it. And maybe you're visiting with us this week. You're like, well, I don't even live here. Then go where you're home and get committed to a body of believers and grow in relationship with each other. Get deep with each other so that you can together experience God's wonderful, holy, judging work in you so that you can shine brightly for him. See, God's got this credible work he wants to do in the church. But as long as people are like bouncing around, it's like, man, figure it out. Get somewhere where you can be part of the family. Go be a, with Smyrna. Go be with Philadelphia. Go be with like, but be somewhere and be committed. And go deep in relationship with one another. That's why we've got our life groups here. 
See, on a Sunday morning, it's really hard to have deep, committed relationships like that. But our life groups, in our life groups, they're real. I mean, if you could be on a fly on a wall in our life group, my goodness, you'd be like, they deal with that? And I'm not going to go into it with you because you're not part of that circle and you wouldn't understand what they're wrestling. But we're bringing the God's word into really practical situations so that we can burn brightly for Jesus Christ. I mean, we've dealt with a lot of hot topics in our group. And you know what's really cool? Guess how many people have left? Boom! Nobody's left because they're angry or they're bitter or they're frustrated or you said too much of God's truth into their life. And that's beautiful because we've said some hard things. I've had hard things said to me. Praise God. See, God places himself in the midst of the church so that we might grow up and be brilliant light bearers for him. Where are you with that? The idea of being this lone Christian out here is not a biblical idea. It's not Christian. Amen. You need each other. Yes. You need to go deep with each other so that Jesus Christ might work in your midst. Because that's why the gathering together of the saints is so important. It's mentioned in Hebrews. And he's not talking about Sunday morning worship services. He's talking about the saints being gathered together for the glory of God and that can happen in 5 and 10 in those wonderful small settings. And my desire this morning isn't to beat us up but rather to listen and see Jesus in his glory and his splendor and saying I want to see God that way. And I want God to speak to me in that way. So if you're not in a smaller circle, I, I would ask that you make it, make it a priority. <clears throat> Figure it out so it becomes a priority. Because it's essential to your ability to be a golden lampstand for God. Because that golden lampstand isn't an individual believer. It's the people of God together, shining brilliantly for Christ. Please join with me in prayer. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your goodness and your glory and your grace to us. I thank you that you are the holy God who demands nothing less. And then you provide holiness for us and then you, you raise us and you say, okay, now live, live it. Let it change you. And then when we fail to do it, you reach forth your hand and you comfort us and you say, I am the living one. I am the eternal Son of God. And you remind us of who you are and that there is forgiveness and grace. And you do so that we may not stay as dead, but that we, as you are, would be alive. And that life is to be lived within the, with, for the kingdom of God. Please, Lord God, Create in this church body a desire to burn brightly. Us as a whole. May we stop thinking of ourselves as a bunch of individuals. But rather we would start understanding ourselves in, in light and context of the church. We are the church. And we together desire to burn brightly for Jesus. Amen. It's not about programs. 
It's not about teams and all this other stuff. It is about being the family of God. Holy Spirit, I pray you would move over these next seven weeks. Move in us. Help us to see where we're not the church. As elders, help us to hear from the church family where, where the church body can come to us and say, hey, we think the church is struggling in this area and then this is us and that we would receive it and we would pray about it and we would repent and we would pursue you that repentance is this beautiful thing that we get to have before a mighty God has provided grace. Please, Lord God, work in us. Humble our hearts and may we be in awe of you. In Jesus' name we pray and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This time we move into a portion of our service as we come here to the end that I think it's going to be kind of fitting as we kind of change things up a little bit to go out on stories of exaltation and praising God. And that's what we're, yeah, that's what we're looking to do during this time. That when you share a God story, God is our hero. And what's great is kiddos, um, I want you to understand something. If you're a kid in here and you've got a God story to share, parents, don't be like, put your hand like if our kiddos got a God story to share we need to hear it this morning too okay so um, who's got a God story to share with us this morning what God been doing this week um, we're coming close to two years since um, Jesus took that man God gave me into his presence. I didn't understand it. I don't understand it. One day I will. Um, over the last couple of years, I've grown, grown a lot closer to Jesus because he has to be my everything. I do have my family here, and I have my life group, and um, they know all about what's been going on, but... Um, um, God has seen fit to give me the opportunity to visit the Holy Land. I will not be here for the next three Sundays because I will be there. And um, at first, it was just an exciting thing for me to be able to do because I've always wanted to do this and, and I like to travel. And um, But especially, as I get closer, it's gotten more about Jesus, but especially this past week, and um, I won't tell you the whole story, but I had this dream, whoops, <laughs> that, <laughs> boom, that I um, came back in love, and I thought, well, that's weird, and a friend of mine, a Christian friend that I work with, and that's another blessing that God has given me, um, said, I think God speaks to us in dreams, and he's going to make this an experience that will draw you closer to him, and that I will be more in love with him. And so now I'm really excited about going and um, um, to see what God does have in store for me for the future. So, all right. thank you for praying for me. I see that hand. (laughs) 
it's really funny when you're in the back and then everyone just like they all turn to face you um so we have a new baby and life is really busy and um last weekend i was talking to someone um from our church and sharing some fear about what i thought god might be asking me to do with some teen with some teenagers basically um and he said, oh, me too. <laughs> he goes, why don't we just do it together? Um, I thought, dang it, because <laughs> now I'm going to have to do it. Um, but then I was more fearful because in the midst of our business, I'm going to have to go talk to my wife and say, I think this is the thing I'm supposed to do. Uh, and she just said, yeah, I think you're right. Um, and so kind of in the sense of what you were saying, saying already today, um, intimacy in this church was my God story last week, and uh, he pushed me right out to where I didn't want to go, um, and so I'm thankful for that. Praise God. This is just a praise God for a healthy seven pound, nine ounce baby girl to our family on the 15th. So. It's not about you, I promise. <laughs> um, when we first moved here almost eight years ago, like, just kind of opening, um, hands open, I've just, okay, Lord, what do you have? Just always that expectant and excitement of, and always in my heart, one of my passions, at least I would always say is one of my passions, are um, teenagers and being able to talk with them about God's plan for their life and um, um, relationships and boyfriends and girlfriends and, and um, honoring God with your a body um, for the future. And, um, and that never, even though I sought some of those opportunities when we first got here, like no doors really um, opened and then we got just really busy with life as life does. Um, and here we are kind of on our way out and over Christmas, I was approached to come talk to the ninth graders um, at the high school. And then I was really nervous. And I actually almost backed out several times. <laughs> and I was like, Lord, I've been wanting this opportunity for years. And, um, and so I was really nervous. And so I got to um, talk to the freshman this last week. And he did ask me to come back. So I thought that was a good sign. 